Well, good morning, church. It is, again, a privilege and a blessing to be able to bring to you this morning God's Word. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 as we continue our series on rediscovering the joy of Christmas. I hope that you and your family are staying healthy. Just want to, again, ask your prayers for us as a staff and as a church as we are currently dealing with the COVID situation. I'm so glad, though, that you chose to join us online today and to look at God's Word. Uh, Last week, we dove into this topic of rediscovering the joy of Christmas, talking about the joy uh, that we could have in the midst of uncertainty. And uh, we looked at Zechariah and how he was uh, the priest, the expected man of God who was righteous and blameless, but yet he did not have faith when the angel said to him that his wife was going to give birth uh, to, to who would be John the Baptist. Well, this morning we're going to look at Mary, and it's right after Zechariah's story, so it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 24, and today we're looking at joy in the midst of weakness, joy in the midst of weakness, and I really like a couple quotes just to start us off with, Uh, when our embarrassment level is exceeded by our desperation level, we are a good candidate for God's grace. Uh, I don't know about you, if you ever ask the question, can God use me? But um, the reality is, is that no matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter your characteristics, God can use us. And we're going to, we're going to see that this morning uh, in Mary's story. Let me give you the definition of joy that we went over last week. It's a really good one. We had our students this past Tuesday uh, really mull this over and start to memorize it. I, I really think it's worth uh, really ingraining in our, in our hearts and minds. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. So right off the bat, there's three things there. The settled assurance that God is in control. And what we're going to see this morning is is that it's really about knowing the character of God. God is good, and that's why we can trust Him. He is also sovereign. We'll look at that in the weeks ahead. But we could also have quiet confidence that everything's going to be all right. He's going to work out things according to good. And we've read the end of the book. We know that Jesus Christ wins, that he is the victor. And so we can have this quiet confidence that he is working all things together for good for those who love us, for who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then the determined choice to praise God in every situation. What we're going to see this morning as we look at, as we look at Mary is that uh, she doesn't have all the answers, and, and she decides to praise God even when her situation uh, looks pretty bleak. Uh, she's gotten this great news, but if it isn't for her faith in the character of God, she's not able to praise God the way she does. Um, a couple other quotes, and then we'll pray. Uh, Jerry Bridges said this, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And I really like uh, what Max Lucado says, grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. That's so encouraging. That's so encouraging. Let's pray. Father, we just want to commit our time to you, and I thank you again for your grace, your goodness the gift of Jesus. Lord, as we think about buying gifts and sharing gifts and giving gifts this Christmas, 
I ask, God, that we would recognize that you are the greatest gift, that you gave us yourself. And I pray this morning as we look at your word that we would really want to know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide my words, and uh, I pray, Father, that you'd guide our time, Lord. God, I I know that there are many who are feeling weak today. Uh, There are many in our congregation who are ill and who are sick, and I just want to pray for them right now in Jesus' name that you would bring a real sense of your presence, your comfort, your Holy Spirit, that you would remind all those who are ailing and dealing with health issues uh, that, um, that you are Lord and that you know uh, you know their way. You know the way that they take. And when they have been tested, Lord, they will come forth as gold. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd strengthen and encourage our body of believers here at Long Grove Church, that we would know you and that we would seek you during these days. God, I pray that as our eyes are fixed on you, that you would give us your joy. We pray for healing. We pray for those who are going through financial difficulties, who are going through just the uncertainties of um, what's going to happen in the new year. Lord, we continue to um, ask God that you would be uh, our wonderful counselor, God with us, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, and Emmanuel. Thank you, Lord, as we were just reminded, Lord, that you love us no matter what. And so, God, I praise you. I pray, Father, that we would be a congregation that knows how much you love us and that you'd fill us with your love uh, so that we can love others this Christmas season. Give us, we, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, as I mentioned earlier, the, the question of the day is, uh, last week it was, how can I be sure? Today is, how can God use me? How can God use me? A uh, quick little story just to kind of give you guys some background here. I love this story about um, a young man who was at a concert. It was a secular punk rock uh, concert. Uh, and he was, uh, he was drunk. He was, he was, he was quite uh, inebriated after the concert, and he loved this certain drummer that he emulated. And he went up to the drummer, and he's like, you know, hey, it's so good to see you. And the drummer started talking to him. And, and as he was parting, you know, the, the, he said to the drummer, he said, God bless you. <laughs> and, uh, and the drummer stopped and said, hey, you know, hey, you know do, you, do you believe in God? And, uh, and it turned out that this young kid who was at this concert said, no, I've been an atheist. I kind of gave up my faith a long time ago. And uh, it turns out that the drummer said, well, I just came to Christ, and tonight is my last night playing in this band. I'm, uh, I'm actually leaving this band, and I'm going to be starting something new, and, um, and I, I feel like God is leading me. And he ended up taking some time with this young man for the next few hours and just sharing the gospel with him. And uh, he ended up leading this young man to the Lord. And it's just kind of an awesome story because this kid, you know, was at this secular concert and just, you know, um, went up to this guy and said, God bless you. And he said, later in hindsight, he said, that's something that I never normally say. But that little conversation led to another conversation that led to him sharing Christ with with the young man and having him come to Christ. And so you never know how God is going to use a conversation, something you say, something you do, um, it got, it got us so much bigger uh, than what we can imagine. And so we're going to look at this story today. I'm going to start off in verse 24 uh, in Luke. It says, After this, his wife Elizabeth, this is Zechariah's wife, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. 
In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, right there, I just want to stop for a second there because there's this idea of being highly favored. And that, that idea is, is God's grace is with you. And uh, he says, the Lord be with you. Now, we know that, uh, that Mary was um, uh, in, in Nazareth, and we know that um, she was pledged to be married to Joseph. But she was just a teenager. And she gets this message, she gets this uh, greeting. And just like Zechariah, there's this angel there, and she experiences this. And I want you to see how she responds. Let's keep going here. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Again, that word for favor is God's grace. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And underline verse 37 here is so important. For no word from God will ever fail. Some versions say nothing is impossible with God. But in the literal uh, original language, it's for no word from God will ever fail. And look at verse 38, Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill, of, uh, hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And then Mary uh, begins the first Christmas carol ever. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones 
but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Wow, this is an exciting story. I don't know about you, but um, uh, right off the bat, Mary encounters this angel, and she, uh, she's, she responds in a different way than, uh, than Zechariah does. Zechariah was doubting and was like, how, this is not going to happen. How, how can this be? You know, it's too impossible. But she's more asking like the biological question. How can I get, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to have a child when I haven't been with anybody? And she's really asking for, for clarity, but she has this faith. And we know that because she says, you know, may it be done to me as you have said. I am the Lord's servant. There's just a different attitude here going on. Uh, one of the things that we look at um, immediately is that God's grace is revealed when he invites us to join, a, join us in the unfolding of his story. Um, that's really what's happening here. God, Mary is being invited to join in in obviously the greatest plan of, of anything that God has ever done. Uh, there's creation, there's the incarnation, and then there's the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And for any of those to take, probably, you know, if you were to say, what is the greatest miracle that God ever did? I mean, they're all amazing. But the incarnation, God becoming a man, is amazing. And he includes us, and he includes Mary here in this, uh, in this process. So we're going to look at this, and we're going to look at her prayer. Uh, first, there's Mary's expression of what she feels in her heart, verses 46 and 47, namely joy. Second, she mentions what God has done specifically for her as an individual, verses 48 and 49, regarding her lowliness, uh, her weakness. Um, God did great things for her and gave her an enduring reputation for blessedness. And then third, she spends most of the time describing the way God is in character, his, uh, his faithfulness in accomplishing his promises. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, God's grace is revealed when he invites us to join in the unfolding of his story. This is God's story, and he invites her to be a part of that. Uh, so exciting. That word overshadowed may seem like a, 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 a strange word, but it's used several times in Scripture to indicate God's presence. Uh, the idea that God, the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. Uh, it was used with the Israelites when they completed the construction of the tabernacle. The cloud of God's glory uh, settles on the tabernacle. Uh, it was also used um, in, with, uh, with Peter, James, and John when they were in the Mount of Transfiguration and the cloud overshadowed them. It draws attention to the miracle of God's presence with Mary. It's interesting that she does not ask for a sign, you know, but Gabriel gives her a sign and says, telling her of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is an example of what he says in verse 37, nothing will be impossible, nothing will be impossible with God. Uh, what God is looking for when we invites us to be a part of his story is not our ability, but our availability. Mary is just saying, hey, I am available. I, 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 Mary had very little going for her in that cultural time. And, you know, if you, if you want to step back and look at the big picture here, 
It's been over 400 years since any prophets or God's word has been revealed to the country, to the, to the nation of Israel. And they're in the hands of the Roman oppressors. So politically, things are bad. Religiously, things are not very good, okay? And just to just think about that, 400 years since God has done anything uh, in, re, in regards to revealing himself through prophets, through the Bible, since Malachi and the, uh, and, and the time of the exile. And so you have to ask yourself the question, who still even believes in God? And then what do we know about Mary in this situation? We know that she's a teenager. Most scholars say she's somewhere between 14 to 17. Uh, we know that she was very poor. And the reason we know that, or most people, most scholars believe that, is because uh, when she gives birth to Jesus, you know, they're supposed to go and give a, a, a lamb as a sacrifice, as a Thanksgiving offering. And uh, that was kind of what every Jewish household was supposed to do. But uh, th- there was an exception in the law that said if you, do, if you did not, could not afford a lamb, you could bring two turtle doves, which was kind of like pennies. It was not a lot. It was, it was, it was a, kind of an exception for poor people. And that's what Joseph and Mary give is two turtle doves when, when the baby is born. So we know that there's a lot going on here. We also know that it's not until months later that Joseph finds out about, until the angel receives, until uh, Joseph receives a vision from an angel. So Mary is on her own. And from all, you know, from all outward external appearances, it looks like God has just ruined her reputation. Because uh, in that time, it was scandalous for a girl to become pregnant who was not yet married. Uh, she was betrothed, betrothed to, to, to marry Joseph, but Joseph lived farther away. So it was obvious that he was not the father. And so the, she was either going to be considered loose or a liar. There was the reputation. And, you know, one of the questions you have to ask is, why did God choose to do it that way? Why didn't he tell everybody, like Mary's parents, the members of the religious community, Joseph, and say, okay, this is what's happening. At, for at least the first few months, Mary is completely on her own. And she receives this revelation from this angel. And, and, and again, I just want you to see her attitude. It's one of submissiveness, and it's one of humility. And, and I share that with you because there's a sense in which she, she's, enabled, she's able to grasp the joy of what God is about to do without having all the details. You know, most of us, we can't believe in God unless we fully understand all the details. (laughs) You know, we want to know what he's going to do, what's going to happen. And I think a lot of times, like Mary, we find ourselves in in circumstances that require obedience. But, you know, as the Proverbs says, Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. And so the idea is, you know, sometimes when God convicts us of something, maybe it's our own sin, maybe it's our pursuit of him, maybe he's calling us to service to him, something we should be doing. Um, And it's really easy to respond, you know, hey, that's for other people, that's not for me, that's not my gift, just leave me alone, you know, I'm doing well enough just as I am. Or or like Moses responded, no, no, I'm not not the right guy. You can't, you know, I, I, I stutter, I do this. And then finally Moses says, no, just choose somebody else. And we see the opposite with Mary here. Mary says, I am the Lord's slave, that word servant there. She's like completely submitting herself. And she says, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. 
we've been uh, trying to get our students to um, think about what is their foundation when it comes to believing in God and what is going to be their compass when it comes to particularly their moral compass and their compass for discerning what is of God and what is not. And uh, really, for the Christian, the two, the two things that are the compass and the foundation is the person and work of Jesus Christ and God's Word. And here, what Mary is, uh, is encountering is, is that what Christ is going to be in her, literally, in a sense, but she's, she's, she's having to take the angel at his word. Now, you might say, well, you know, does Mary know the Scriptures? Does she know the Old Testament Scriptures? A lot of people believe that she does because when she bursts forth in her song, in her Magnificat, and she starts praising God, it's literally, if you were to take Hannah's, um, Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah was a woman who cried out to God, who was barren for the longest time, and cried out to God that he would give her a child, and God gave her Samuel. If you look at the, there's a direct parallel between Mary and Hannah's song, because after Hannah uh, receives the child and, and Samuel is born, Hannah burst out in praise to God, and it's a very similar. And so a lot of commentators believe that Mary was so steeped in God's word, she knew about Abigail, she knew about Deborah, she knew about Ruth, she knew about Hannah, and she just really just, you know, she burst forth in praise, kind of like Zechariah did after John was born and after he was able to talk. There's just this out, outpouring of, uh, of praise. Uh, so uh, his grace produces joy. His grace produces joy. Let's look at what she says here. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, we've, we, what we're saying about joy is that joy is kind of like a smoke alarm that goes off and kind of tells you where, what your hope is in. And when you don't have joy uh, or you have joy in the wrong thing, if it's, if it's planted in the wrong area, usually um, your joy gets stolen or goes away pretty quick. And so one of the questions we're going to look at, at this in this is, is, she says, I will magnify my Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What we magnify, what we give glory to, that word magnify is, is related to glory, which is the, in the Hebrew word is, is weight. What, what, is, what we give a lot of weight to, what is most important, it, what we think is, is, is of the greatest importance, that is what we rejoice in. And for her, she's rejoicing in God and in, in, in her Savior. That's her focus. Without having all the details of what this is going to involve, without knowing that she is going to you know, have to travel to Egypt and live there for years, that she's going to be hunted and the baby's going to be hunted and killed, that without knowing that he is going, he is going to be treated, mistreated, treated unfairly, without knowing that, you know, as Simeon says, a sword is going to pierce her soul, the cross, he's going to be whipped and he's going to be uh, crucified and killed. She is still saying, you know what? My focus is in God. And, and uh, she, she means that at this moment, her soul feels the greatness and the holiness and the mercy of God. I put down, his grace is magnified in our submission. We'll come back to that, that magnify and that rejoicing at the end today, but let's continue. She submits, okay? 
There's a lot of people who get um, Mary's identity wrong. Because Mary was chosen to be um, the, the one through whom she would bear Jesus, uh, a lot of times uh, it's, it, you know, if you look at the scripture, it says, blessed are you among women, not above women. And so this might be a good time just to mention that Mary is unique, um, but she is not exalted above other women in the sense that she is sinless. She's not co-mediatrix. We don't pray to her. And the reason we know that is because she needed a Savior. And she's saying that. She says, I'm rejoicing in God, my Savior. She, was, she, was, she doesn't talk about her personal worthiness. In fact, it's the opposite. She feels completely uh, humble and completely like unworthy to have this um, ability to bear the, the, the Son of God. So while we praise her for her submissiveness, we don't uh, put her above all other people and worship her or deify her or make her like a saint that we pray to uh, because she just, she needed that. And that's why I was quoting uh, even Jesus later on in the Gospel of Luke. Um, uh, he warns, uh, Luke tells us that once after Jesus had spoken, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the woman that that has bore you and the breast that you sucked. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then at another time uh, in Luke, his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him for the crowd. And he, he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he said to them, my, bro- my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus was fairly blunt in both of these instances and there surely is, is no indication that Mary should be venerated in a moral class by herself. Um, but she does submit. And this obedience is, uh, is, is, is kind of like in Joseph. Joseph. Joseph submits and he yields to God. You know, we've been talking about in the Gospel of Luke how there's a, a threefold uh, aspect to joy. One is that there's joy, but it's always connected to being filled with the Spirit. And, uh, and then it's always connected to praising God. And so if you ever want to know where you are with the Lord, those are three little areas kind of like to, to kind of test to see, you know, am I, because usually what often happens is, is that we notice that our joy is not, we've lost our joy. Um, but what we need to go back to is, hey, am I being filled with the Spirit of God? Because joy is a byproduct of that. I put down here the joy of humility. Look at what, um, look, look at verse 42. Elizabeth, it says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Why, is, why, is Mary, why does Elizabeth say that Mary is so blessed? Look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Remember we looked at Habakkuk? The righteous shall live by faith. 
That's so important. Mary is a woman of faith. She believes. She acts on that belief. Her plans were turned upside down, she, and she followed God faithfully. She's a wonderful example of a woman of faith. I love what she says in verse 48 and 49. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God looked on her humble estate. He could have glanced at her and rejected her, thinking that her surroundings were too humble, her town too small, her parents too unimportant. But instead, he looked at her and chose a nobody. (laughs) He did not look away, rejecting her because she was nobody in the eyes of the world. So Mary says here, I am a nobody. I'm not important. My plans were not important. God is everything. He is mighty. He has done great things for me. So now everyone in the future, all generations, will call her blessed by God. Why will this continue forever into the future? Because as Gabriel said, uh, Jesus' kingdom will never end. As Gabriel said, the kingdom will never end. Mary clearly believes Gabriel's prophecy. She concludes this section by declaring, holy is his name. The last thing I put down in our notes is his grace mends us in our brokenness. His grace produces joy. His grace calls us to be a part of his story. God wants us. God wants to use us in the unfolding of his story. And when we get chosen to be a part of his story, it it produces joy. His grace is magnified in in our submissiveness when we submit to the plan and we trust him. And then I put down here, his grace mends us in our brokenness. The holy God helps the broken and the lonely and the lowly. Remember who this uh, book was written to? It was written to Theophilus. And uh, Mary here is stressing is the the way this holiness expresses itself. And her words are a warning to Theophilus to us to not make the common mistake that because God is great, he is partial to great men, or because God is exalted, he favors what is exalted among men. Actually, the opposite is true. God's holiness is expressed itself, uh, expresses itself and will express itself by exalting the lowly and abasing the haughty. Who is it that is esteemed in your presence, the humble and the lowly? She says, he has mercy on those who fear him. He has exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things. You know, it's interesting that there's three components in her song. Holiness, God's holiness, God's might, and God's mercy. And if you think about that, that's really the gospel, the core of the gospel. When we think of holiness, sometimes we get like, we think of ultra-religious words, we think of like, you know, these different ideas. But there's two ideas with God's holiness. One is is that he is set apart. He is not like us. But the other idea is that he is whole. He is perfect. He is complete. He is mature. We are not. We are used to living in a sinful world with lots of distractions and, and uh, with lots of, uh, of, of pride and prejudice and, and lust and lying and, 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 and dissension. And there's so much, and we kind of just get used to it. But God, because he is set apart and because he is, he is whole and perfect, he can't have any part of it. I heard this illustration 
um, the idea of us defiling God. Um, uh, you know, imagine if a chef was, was going to make you your favorite meal. And uh, uh, the chef came out and he presented the meal and he said, well, I did, uh, be, you know, I, I took a, a, a three-month-old rotten corpse, the arm of a corpse, and I, and I grated it and I shredded it and it's just kind of like throughout your meal. Would you eat it? <laughs> no, you would not touch it because it's been defiled. It's been, it's been, it's been con- completely contaminated. Even though it's your favorite food, you won't touch it because it's been defiled. That's the same thing with you and I going to heaven. We can't bring our sin into heaven. God can't look at sin in any way. And so the idea here is that God is perfect and God is just. And any type of, uh, of creation that goes into heaven the way we are right now will be defiled, will, 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 will be will corrupt and would, 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 not, would not be accepted in heaven. But because of God's might and God's power, and because of his unlimited mercy and his desire to show mercy to us, he has made a way through Jesus Christ so that we, he who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the gospel. As you look at Mary's story here, she is emphasizing her song. She is emphasizing that God is holy and he's perfect, but yet at the same time, he is incredibly merciful. And that's where the incarnation is so awesome because in his incredible power, he has decided that the, most, the way that he could save us was to come down and to become a human being and to give up the rights of heaven and to become like us and to go through everything that we've gone through. And it's, you know, I always ask the question around Christmas, why did, G, why did God decide to send his son as a baby to a poor teenage girl to a couple who was on the run, who were, uh, you, know, in a, you know, who are very broken. And, you know, Christianity is the only religion where you see the humiliation of God. Why does God do it that way? And there's many answers to that. But one of them is to show the depths of his love and his mercy and to show that in the same way that Mary and even the baby Jesus, even his son, had to be dependent on the Father so we too can trust in God's might and God's holiness and God's mercy to make it through. This is so encouraging to me because I know a lot of times I feel like, you know, who am I that God can use me? I don't know if you ever feel like that uh, at all. I was so excited that we as a church last week went out caroling in Long Grove and uh, what a blessing that was that we were able to go outside of the four walls. I want to say thank you to all of you who donated um, uh, food for the food drive. What a blessing that was as well, to be able to go and bless over 50 families that are in need. You know, the, one of the lies that I've been, uh, that, that continues to, to crop up, and I think COVID can easily, can easily um, uh, perpetuate this, is that lie that, that, that the church is basically um, a building or an event that people come to. And the people who do ministry are the people who are here on stage, you know. And that could never be further from the truth. When you look at the gospel and the New Testament, you know, the, the church is a group of Jesus-gathered people who are sent out to do the work of God wherever God puts them. And they overflow 
of the love and the mercy of Christ. And, and, and so they, they, they go out and they do God's work. The primary uh, church is not primarily a place. It's who we are and where God sends us. And so we gather together to be equipped and to be empowered and to praise God so that we can go and do that. And so I'm so encouraged that because a lot of times what happens here is a lot of us, we, we look at Mary and we're like, oh, well, that Mary could do that. Or, or people in the Bible, they could do these things, but I can't. You know, I, I'm not good enough. I'm not skilled enough. I don't know enough. And, uh, and the reality is, is that that is just not true. Uh, in fact, I want to read to you um, uh, just a, a quick little thing on, on how God uses people and just give us a little bit of a background here. Uh, Peter preached his greatest message and his greatest ministry after he denied Jesus. <laughs> Moses was a murderer, yet God used him for his glory. Samson sinned against God, yet he slew more Philistines at the end of his life than he did throughout his entire ministry. Abraham lied repeatedly, yet he was used of the Lord. Jacob was a deceiver, yet God transformed him. Uh, Your past condition is no obstacle. Your present circumstances are no obstacle to God using you. The question is, will you be available to him? Will you be like Mary that says, hey, I am your servant. I'm I'm going to do this, whatever you ask of me. I wanted to read you guys something real fast that just, I think... uh, First Corinthians one twenty seven says this: God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Isn't that isn't that the gospel? I mean, even Paul. You know, sometimes we 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 uh, we, we we put Paul up on a pedestal, but his letters were weighty and forceful. In person, he is Second Corinthians ten ten says he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. <laughs> Um, 2 Corinthians eleven six 6 says, I may indeed be an untrained and as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. Galatians 4, it says, It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and my illness was a trial to you. So even the Apostle Paul struggled with this. Uh, God used a young Jewish girl named Esther to save his people from slaughter. God used a, a young unknown boy named David, the least of his clan, to be the greatest king to ever sit on the throne of Israel. God used a beggar named Lazarus to preach a sermon to a rich man. He used 12 unknown men from various walks of life to set the world on fire for God. Even the Son of God had several strikes against him. Some saw him as being no more than the son of Mary and Joseph. Most thought that there was no way God could use someone from Nazareth. Remember that quote, quote, can anything good come from Nazareth? Others questioned the fact that he came from Galilee. Some even said that Jesus was nothing more than the tool of Satan. Even with these marks against him, who can deny that God used this life more than any other which he had, than any other person that's walked upon the face of the earth? Um, somebody said this, Abraham was old, Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was codependent, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was reluctant, uh, Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric. Peter was impulsive. Martha worried too much. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular, as also, as also known as a crook. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. God still can use any of us. Those of us who are tired, broken, and spent. No matter what, God is able to use us if 
we bring our weakness to him. If we bring our weakness to him. So as we begin to close this time, I want to just encourage you to think about where your joy is these days. Um, and, and what was it that got Mary so excited? Because from all external situations, you know, no, nothing had come to pass yet. She was still going to have a ruined reputation. She was still going to be pregnant and unexplainably pregnant. She was still going to not know what her future would hold. She still wasn't even married to Joseph, and yet she's praising God. What was, why was she able to do that? Number one, his presence. Uh, she's, she's not rejoicing in what God has given to her, but what God has become to her in Christ. I think a lot of times, again, and I mentioned this last week, this is where the prosperity gospel really gets it wrong. We think that the whole purpose of faith and the whole purpose of going to God is to get things, earthly things. And really, the whole message of the gospel is that he wants to give us himself. He wants to give us his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness. He wants to give us a deeper revelation of who he is so that we can know him. And when we know him, that gives us the ability to live the life that he calls us and wants us to live. But I think a lot of times we are uh, short-circuit the process because we focus on all the things that God is giving us. And that's not good. As I mentioned, he fo- she focused on holy God's holiness, God's might, and God's mercy. The greatest blessing, the blessing that makes all others appear insignificant in comparison is that Jesus is ours. Holiness, mercy, and might characterized his life. He was holy. He was merciful. He was mighty. To the dying thief on the cross, he showed us there was no sinner beyond the reach of his mercy. To the woman with the issue of blood, he showed us that there was no problem too small, no person too marginal for him to cure. At the tomb of Lazarus, to Mary and Martha, he showed us as he weeps with us in our pain as that, as, that he is our treasure. He is the blessing. So it was God's presence and it was God's promise that gave Mary her, that's what her faith was focused on, and that was the source of her joy. His, her, the promise, in verse, look at verse 54 and 55, our last two verses. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In Christ, God was fulfilling the promise he gave to Abraham and his descendants he gave to Abraham many years before to bless him. Well, it's been 2,000 years since that promise, and I'm sure many concluded those promises were no longer valid if he even exists at all. And then this angel shows up, okay? And now it's been another 2,000 years, and we're still waiting on Christ to come back. When God promises to bless you, he is saying, I'm going to make you into everything I've ever meant you to be. It means that God is taking every day and every single thing that happens in it, good or bad, to make us stronger to mend whatever is broken inside, and to change you into the person you were always meant to be. The blessing is what God is making you and the knowledge of Jesus he is bringing to others through you. So I want to ask us this. Are we living as one that has been blessed and highly favored? You know, I mentioned last week that when Jesus, when the disciples went out and they casted out demons and they came back, they had a successful ministry. 
And Jesus said, Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, that you know me. Don't rejoice that you're successful in what you do, or even in your ministry or your church, but rejoice that you know me. It goes back to his presence and his promise. Can you still be happy? What do you magnify? Remember I mentioned that earlier? What we magnify is often what we rejoice in. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Whatever you magnify, you rejoice in. What has to be true in your life for you to be able to rejoice? Whatever it is, you magnify. See, some of us, some of you who are older, uh, who are older in the faith, who could care less about the gospel, but when your grandkids come over, you, you just boil up with joy but because that's what you magnify. When you magnify your family, that's what you rejoice in. You know, some of us guys, we get so excited when the guy crosses that line and gets a touchdown or puts that little leather ball in the iron hoop, okay? We rejoice in that because that's what we magnify. But a lot of times when it comes to reading the Bible or listening to a sermon or singing songs of praise, we're not into that. You know, it's, it's, we, could, we, we check out because our joy is in what we magnify. I know a lot of young ladies, who, they, 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 it's a discipline for them to read the Bible, even for 15 minutes a day. It's so like, oh my gosh, it becomes like a discipline and a burden and a challenge. And it's like, oh, 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 I can't even get it open my Bible regularly. But they'll be online looking at, you know, clothes, and they'll be looking at sales on bags and clothes and different things, uh, because that's what our world magnifies, and that's what we rejoice in. And so how do we go from people who just rejoice in the mundane things of life and begin to be like Mary who says, you know what, I don't have a lot, but here's what I know, and I don't, I don't know what's coming. You know, she doesn't know everything that's coming, but she's saying, you know what, my soul magnifies the Lord. I will rejoice in God my Savior. This is exactly like Habakkuk 3. Even though the tree is not ripe, even though the bud, even though the fig tree does not, you know, the leaf does not bud, even though, you know, so many bad things are happening around me, I'm going to choose to rejoice in God, my Savior. Remember, we, we, we started t- today with what is the definition of joy? And we said it's a, it's a settled assurance that God is in control of the details of my life. Mary was able to have that. She didn't know what was going to happen. But she said, Lord, may it be whatever. Because she knew his character, his presence. It's a quiet confidence that everything's going to work out all right in the end. And it's a determined choice to praise God in every situation. I've been uh, encouraged by personal times of worship and just trying to help our students to make time to worship and make time for myself to worship. Because I have found that in my life, I cannot just turn it on and off really easily. I, I, if I wait until I feel like worshiping God or feel like praying or feel like getting into my word, into the word of God, it, 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 it'll, it'll be very inconsistent. So you have to make a choice, and especially with worship. I just want to encourage you. Um, maybe there's some different uh, avenues that you can pursue uh, through, through, through music, through the internet, through your phone, through YouTube, to just take time to just worship God and to praise him for who he is. 
and, and it'll, it'll open your heart to seeing him for who he is. I want to close with a story. It's a little bit long, and I don't know if I should do it or not, but um, I, I've been wanting to share this story with you guys. It's uh, just a blessing, and it's along these lines of can God use me. It's a true story about a woman named Grace. And uh, Grace, um, from human perspective, the answer to that question, can God use me, can often be uh, tied to our performance rating. But uh, Grace was about as ordinary as anyone uh, that uh, anyone has ever known. And this story is told from a pastor's perspective. Her pastor was Dwight. Uh, She wasn't a likely candidate for high-impact ministry. She lived in an uh, old-fashioned straw-town pike uh, in in rural north-central Indiana. She lived in an old farmhouse in Indiana. And uh, she walked around with a significant limp, uh, signature limp. She was in her 70s. She wore her wiry gray hair up in a bun. She usually wore a colorful dress and nylon stockings that sometimes bagged around her ankles. Grace and her husband had raised five boys, but by her senior year, they were grown and living with their families in other places. When her husband passed away, she found herself in a strange season of life with fewer responsibilities and meaningful things to do. She often prayed that God would give her something significant to do for him in her final years. She wanted to sprint to the finish line. Grace told her pastor, I don't know how God could use an old woman like me, but if he'll show me what he wants me to do, I'll do it. One day she was reading a prison ministry magazine. I think it was Prison Fellowship. And she found an an open letter from an inmate named Bobby who had recently become a Christian. Bobby was looking for a godly grandmother who would disciple him. Uh, He had just committed his life to Christ at a prison revival service, and he wasn't sure what to do next. Grace wrote the magazine editor and asked if he could uh, help her get connected with Bobby. She told the editor that she had raised five boys, and she uh, she had it in her to be the spiritual grandmother of another. The editor helped her connect with Bobby. She really wasn't sure what to do. She had never done anything really like this intentionally before uh, with her new spiritual grandson, but she found some correspondence Bible studies and she began leading him through them. Soon Bobby led his cellmate to Christ and Grace became his spiritual grandmother too. Not long afterward, the the pastor visited and showed up uh, at, at, uh, at Grace's house and there was a picture of her growing group of seven boys each of whom had become a Christian through Bobby's influence. She says, I'm having the time of my life, Grace says, uh, as she shared with uh, her personal stories. Right now I've got a captive audience, (laughs) she said with a smile and a twinkle in her eye, but I figure that they won't be in prison for the rest of their lives. Uh, Today they'll impact the lives of their fellow inmates, but someday they'll get out of prison and impact the world. Well, the, the pastor stopped by her house again a number of months later, and she welcomed him in, and guess what? The closet was full of filing cabinets and Bible study lessons. He looked around her living room and was surprised to find that the couch and coffee table had been replaced by work tables and computers. Wow, what's going on, Grace? It doesn't take all of this to disciple seven inmates. <laughs> oh, Pastor Dwight, a lot has happened since you were here. God has done more with this ministry than I could ever imagine. I was eager to hear all about it. He says, I, did you know that prisoners get transferred, she continued? I've had boys get transferred to prisons in Alabama and Texas, and they've been sharing Christ with inmates in those prisons too. I'm now leading uh, Bible studies with inmates in three prisons, all from my little farmhouse in Straw Town Pike, Indiana. <laughs> 
uh, the pastor kept going over there regularly, and this, the, time, the last time he went, she had a, a world map up on her wall, no joke, uh, with all of the Americas. And he said, Grace, what are all these dots? He, he, she said, those are my boys and all their extras. Okay, I know about your boys, but what, what, what are their extras? Well, a while back, my boys started getting out of prison, and they'd lead their wives, children, and other family members to Christ. So they asked me if I'd be a spiritual grandmother to their family members as well. These are the extras that I never expected God to make a part of my spiritual family. But what about all those dots in Latin countries, the pastor asked. How do they get there? She told me that some of the Hispanic inmates had introduced her to their Spanish-speaking friends and family members when they got out of prison. She started receiving letters written in Spanish from people in Cuba. So she prayed that God would send someone who could translate. And God did. God sent her to a, sent to her a retired Spanish teacher named Clara. <laughs> I'm in over my head, Pastor Dwight, she said. We're now discipling more than a thousand Spanish-speaking people, and Clara comes over to my house three days a week to translate their correspondence. I've seen, I've, I've even added seven college students who volunteer with me. A few months later, he, uh, he called her on the road. How are you doing, Grandma Grace? You've been on my mind this week. You're not the only one, she quipped. Uh, my kids have been thinking about me this week, too. In fact, they're worried about me, Dwight. They checked my bank account and found out that I only have $14.63 left in it. Apparently, I've spent more than I realized on all this correspondence. They said there's not enough money in my account to bury me someday. <laughs> I told them not to worry because souls will be going to heaven. I laughed with her for a few minutes, the pastor said. Then I asked her a question I wanted to ask for a long time. Grace, how many people are you corresponding with? Oh, that doesn't matter, she said. I love all of them and as if they're all my own grandkids. After some coaxing, I finally got her to give me a number. I don't know the real, I don't even know the exact number, she replied. Last time I counted, there were more than 10,000. I was shocked. I really didn't know what to say, so she continued as if there were no big deal. Last week, the U.S. Postal Service told me that I had to get an industrial-sized mailbox or they won't deliver all my mail anymore. <laughs> then she started laughing so hard that she could hardly speak her next few words. I have a dream that someday the post office will assign me my own zip code. <laughs> oh, they all began to laugh. What an amazing thing to witness. God has chosen to send ripples through all of eternity through an old gray-haired widow and an odd assortment of her friends out of a farmhouse in Strawtown Pike in the middle of rural Indiana. But it shouldn't have surprised me, the pastor said. He said, God has clearly shown us that that's his plan throughout history, his story, history, he has often chosen obscure people who live in small places to accomplish his big eternal plans and purposes. God has a history of using the insignificant to accomplish the impossible. Gracie the grandma passed away a few years ago. The kingdom of darkness was in doubt, was no doubt glad to see her go, but the impact of her life will be felt for decades to come as each of her spiritual grand, uh, grandchildren influences the lives of others. Grace's life was a living sermon to every one of us. It was a reminder that God still wants to use us in unimaginable ways to reach the world. It was a reminder that all we have to do is provide uh, the ordinary, and he will provide the extraordinary. One author wrote this. He said, the fate of the world is in the hands of nameless saints, <laughs> not Christian celebrities, not upfront personalities, not superior Christians. The fate of the world is in the hands of commonplace laborers like Grace the Grandma. It's in the hands of people like you and like me. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you again for reminding us, Lord, that none of us are beyond hope. Lord, thank you, God, that your love reaches down and you see us in our sinful, depraved state and sometimes even prideful, God. But Lord, today we want to start by just saying, Lord, we are your servants. May it be done to us according to your word. God, we want to join in with Mary and be part of your unfolding story. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who's been listening to this sermon and just is, doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't, has never ever personally received Jesus as their Savior. And I just ask God that today would be the day that they just call out to you and repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray for all of us who are magnifying things that are just not going to last, things that don't matter, and things that ultimately can be taken from us and steal our joy. God, we want to rejoice in you. God, show us more of who you are. And Lord, I pray that we would magnify you and that your joy, the joy of the Lord, would be our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.